This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Our brains are a complex network of billions of neurons communicating through electrical signals, allowing us to perceive and process the world around us, whether that is sound, sight, smell, or recognizing patterns, faces, or other people's emotions. <laughs> Scientists have been able to figure out a lot about the brain. But there are many questions that we still don't have answers for. Including, for some diseases, what is actually happening in these brain cells when things go wrong? Naomai Hairumai, welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Claire Kankanen tēnei. Two brain-related stories for you today. Mask use has become a part of our everyday reality now. What does this mean for how we relate to people? Like, in our day-to-day interactions, it's kind of key to be able to recognise if the other person is happy or sad or angry or scared. But with much of our faces covered, can our brains still find enough clues to do the job? Can artificial intelligence... Sonia Yi brings us the story shortly. But first, before lockdown, I paid a visit to the Centre for Brain Research in the University of Auckland to catch up with Senior Research Fellow Dr Victor Dierichs to learn about his work, trying to find a way to put the brakes on Parkinson's disease. The main aim of my research is not to cure Parkinson. Parkinson is a very complex disease has multiple causes to it, and how every person reacts is very different as well. So my aim is to slow down the disease. I always try and compare it to HIV research. In the 90s, if you contracted HIV, you would die within six months. Now, we haven't cured the disease, except for one or two people in the world, but we've managed to delay the onset of symptoms. And you can live 40 years with the disease and still be in perfect health. So that's what I'm trying to do with Parkinson. I want to slow down the disease to give people that have mild symptoms extra time with just those mild symptoms. Over 10 million people worldwide suffer from Parkinson's disease and around 11,000 in New Zealand. It is a progressive disorder where brain cells or neurons die off. It seems to start with cells in the olfactory bulb, which is responsible for our sense of smell. Victor explains why. Research has shown that the olfactory bulb is quite sensitive because in order to smell, 
we have to create a weakness in the brain. So the brain is very well protected. We have the skull, we have uh, a membrane, some liquid around it. So it's basically completely sealed off from the environment. But in order to smell, neurons will have to go from the brain into the nose so we can actually detect the smells. Eh? And this weakness allows viruses to come in contact with the neurons or bacteria or metals or pesticides and we uh, studies have shown that they are linked to the start of Parkinson's. I never thought of it like that but of course yeah your brain stem is all sealed in and then goes to the rest of your body but yes. your, the neurons that come from your brain to your nose are exposed to the outside. Yeah. It's kind of like a weak link within the whole chain. It is well protected so there's like extra layers of immune cells around it so it's well protected and in some a lot of people we don't get parkinson but in some it does show because you only need one cell to actually kickstart the whole process but once this kickstart happens the problem moves through the brain and when neurons in a particular area called the substantia nigra start to die this impacts movement first only slightly but then getting progressively worse. So what is happening in these brain cells? And how is Victor trying to slow this down? One of the main components of things that go wrong in Parkinson's disease is this protein called alpha-synuclein that forms clumps, it aggregates into protein clumps. And the formation of these protein clumps is toxic for the cells. So we've seen that in, in cells, we've seen that in human brains that where we see these protein clumps, we see uh, cell death occurring. So in Parkinson's disease, we see loss of smell as one of the early symptoms because the protein clumps appear in the olfactory bulb. And as the disease progresses deeper into the brain, at the back of the brain, the substantia nigra, and when the cells start dying off there, once about 70% of a particular neuronal cell type called dopaminergic neurons die off, people start to have the typical motor symptoms, the slowness of movement, lack of facial expression. So we know that this protein that forms clumps is detrimental. Now this protein, alpha-synuclein, is a common protein in brain cells. Normally, it just does its job and there are no issues. But when it forms these clumps, this is where the problems start. And this is what Victor is really focused on, why are these proteins clumping? And is there something we can do to slow or stop it from happening? It's noisy where we are because we're standing in a tissue culture room. A room carefully designed for the purpose of growing and experimenting with cells. And in this case, human brain cells. So they're grown in dishes filled with media. This liquid containing all the nutrients that the cells need to grow. On one side of the room is a row of tissue culture hoods. These are enclosed benches with a special airflow system to keep the area as sterile as possible. You can hear it humming away, and the alarm as the hood switches on. So uh, what we do here is every time a human brain is donated to the brain bank, we take parts of the brain and we bring it into the tissue culture and we can... Um, sorry about that. This is how we start our day. So we bring it into the tissue culture hoods, which is completely sterile. We mash up the tissue and we can grow uh, certain cells from the brain in culture. 
The Centre for Brain Research sits alongside the Neurological Foundation Human Brain Bank. The Human Brain Bank holds donated brains from patients that had neurodegenerative diseases, allowing researchers to study affected brain tissue and cells. This is really important for diseases such as Parkinson's, where different patients are affected differently. Of course, there are many different types of cells in the brain. One type that Victor works with is called parasites. These are cells that line the blood vessels of the brain and are important for the overall brain structure. We're one of the only labs in the world that have a collection of about 300 different parasite lines, so all originating from different people. Some have Parkinson's, others have Alzheimer's, uh, others have Huntington's, others are just healthy controls, which are very important as well. So we start every day by opening the tissue culture hoods, replacing the cell culture media to make sure they have all the nutrients they require. And then we put them back in the incubator and they can stay there at 37 for the next day until we need them for uh, experiments. So Victor uses the cells to study the alphas and nucleon protein clumps. In particular, he is interested in the different shapes that these clumps form, because these different shapes seem to mean that you get different responses in the cell and different disease progression in patients. I have different types of protein clumps that we call strains. You can think of them as different types of spaghetti. So one strain will look like spaghetti, so it's long and round. The other one uh, is more like linguine, it has a bit of a twist in it, and there's a few others that look more like macaroni. So even though they consist of exactly the same thing, like pastas do, they, their 3D structure is, is different. So we believe that in Parkinson's disease, part of the variability that we see between patients, because every patient has different symptoms, the disease progresses at a different rates. We believe that this is caused by the type of protein clump or strain that is in the brain. So what I do is I give the brain cells these different type of alpha-synuclein strains and see how they react. We can use a technique called RNA sequencing and it basically takes a snapshot of all the genes that are activated. RNA sequencing allows you to get an idea of how the cell is responding to the different shaped protein clumps. Activating genes means their proteins get made, and then these proteins presumably go to work. But what do they do? This is what Victor is keen to find out next. Now he knows what genes are activated in the presence of these different clump shapes, he wants to figure out what proteins these genes make and what the role of these proteins in the cell is. Once he does that, he will also check this in the full brain tissues. Because our cells don't normally live in a dish in some media in an incubator. So he wants to make sure that there is no difference in where the protein is in the cells compared to actual brain tissue. What I'll do then is look at these proteins and look at them in the human brains to see if they're also there. And if they're in a certain part of the cells in, in culture, are they in the same part of the cell when we look at them in the brain? Are they in the same cell type or are they in different cell types? So we're always trying to check what we see in the cell culture versus what we see in the human brain. And I think that's really important because I don't, you don't want to do 
10 years of research where you think you found something and then actually it doesn't work out in the end. And how can you find out where proteins are in cells? Well, you use some real flash microscopes. So we're going downstairs to the microscope. All the microscopes. So we have an imaging facility here. So we combine the resource because they're all quite expensive and everybody can use them when they require. We take the lift down to the basement. Because as Victor tells me, the microscopes are sensitive to vibrations. So they're best placed as close to the ground as possible to minimize this. So behind every door here, you'll find a different microscope. Wow. Yeah. So 11 doors and some doors have several microscopes. Several microscopes. Wow. It's just a choose your door for the cool toy to play with. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. I just think microscopes are incredible. And Victor is about to show me a pretty amazing one that allows scientists to visualize where proteins are in different brain cells. It's just finished. Okay. So this microscope basically allows us to image five sections at once. And then we can look at different markers in one go. When you say markers, you mean little add-ons to proteins that fluoresce under a specific wavelength of light. Yes, exactly. Honestly, this stuff is so cool. Once Victor identifies a protein he wants to study, he will get antibodies made that bind to that protein. Now, antibodies you've probably heard of in terms of our immune system. But what antibodies in general are really, really good at is recognising and binding to a part of a particular protein. And scientists have made use of that. So there's this neat system where you can attach a fluorescent tag to that antibody that you've had made for the protein that you're really interested in. So it goes, antibody binds to protein, tag the antibody with this fluorescent molecule, use your fancy microscope to shine a laser on the cells so you make that molecule fluoresce and bingo, you can see your protein. So the brain consists of quite a few different cell types. All of these different cell types we can detect with specific antibodies. And then we can look at where alpha-synuclein is found within these cells, for instance. And in my case, I'm looking at proteins that are interacting with the alpha-synuclein. I can look at how these proteins react with alpha-synuclein and in which cell they are found. What Victor would dearly like to find are proteins in the cell that are actively working to declump these alpha-synuclein aggregates. If he can find them, maybe he can give them a helping hand. Your brain is constantly fighting. What I'm looking into is how the brain and particularly these parasites react to these protein aggregates and how it actually, under normal circumstances, breaks it down. Because if we reduce the total amount of protein aggregates, then these protein aggregates can't spread to the next cell and then to the next cell and to the next cell. So we want to keep them contained and see if we can break them down in the first area of the brain that we see them. The theory is it's kind of like a chain reaction. People can be genetically predisposed, but an environmental factor, maybe a virus or a toxin, 
kickstarts alpha synuclein protein clumping into one of these odd shapes. But once this protein clumps into this shape, for some reason, cells start to then copy this clump shape and it spreads from one cell to the next, affecting different cells in the brain as it spreads, eventually causing them to die. But if you could undo the clumping or slow it down, then you would buy people time. And though there is a lot more work to be done, this is Victor's hope. Thanks to Dr. Victor Dierichs, Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Brain Research in the University of Auckland. Now we move to another part of the brain, one involved in recognition of facial expressions and emotions. Can our brains adapt to this new normal of people wearing face masks? Are we still able to perceive how people are responding emotionally to what we are saying? Sonia Yi with this story. With the threat of COVID-19 and lockdowns all over the world, and now with Delta in New Zealand, the use of masks is not only commonplace, but also becoming increasingly compulsory. Now, that being said, what happens when we meet others down the street with our masks on? Does it change how we interact? I mean, I know for one that I'm more likely to gesture with my body, which I'll talk about in a little bit. But also, what happens when we bring artificial intelligence into the picture? The ability of AI to recognize. The ability of AI to recognize or identify the identity of people drops from 90 something percent to just 12 percent with a mask on. Harusu Abdali Shehu is a PhD student at Victoria University and his research investigates emotions from facial expressions through to the physiological changes that take place. And due to the quality of audio recorded via Zoom during lockdown and in consultation with Harasu, we've used an actor's voice word for word, just to make it easier to understand. He says investigating the use of mask wearing and emotions has a range of benefits, but has also illuminated some problem areas for those who rely on lip reading. So researchers uh, kind of start thinking of how... So researchers have started thinking about how people with hearing aids can communicate with lip reading. Face masks cover the lips, so there are manufacturers who have come up with a new type of face mask which allows the lips to be visible so that people with hearing aids can still lip read while the face is covered. When it comes to emotions and speech, when the face is covered by a mask, the AI makes a random guess. If, for example, you make a happy face, the AI might make an accuracy reading of 100% if there's no mask covering the face. But when you use the face mask, the AI just randomly guesses the facial expression because it gets confused. The reason behind that is because this artificial intelligence is trained to read images of people without a face mask. The algorithms that are used in this AI system memorise the kind of features you give them. They're not expecting to see something with a face mask, which is why they won't perform well in this scenario. Which begs a question. Does the AI even recognise a human being as a human being while wearing a mask? Or does it see something else? Sometimes it might recognise... Sometimes it might recognise a face. Research has shown that the ability of AI to identify the identity of people drops from 90-something percent to 12% with a mask on. This is less than a random guess, which is really low. Harasu says, with the ongoing issues around the pandemic as a transmissible virus, robots could be beneficial in places like care homes and hospitals. Forwards! Forwards! 
At the moment, places like Japan have robots and retail stores. There's even a hotel staffed by them. They have female and male robot staff to make you feel at home. There are even robotic fish in the fish tanks. But why is it important for artificial intelligence to recognise facial expressions and our emotions in the first place? To be able to introduce robots. To be able to introduce robots to interact with people in a hotel or retail store, the robots need to understand people's emotions for them to react in an intuitive way to enhance a customer experience. I came from Tokyo before coming to New Zealand, and Tokyo has a new airport, and in the centre of the airport there, there are robots there to help people trying to direct them to places. If you want to ask questions, the airport deploys robots to help people to find their way around in the airport. But how far off are we in New Zealand from having robots incorporated into our everyday lives? I see this to be happening like... I see this will happen more in the future, maybe in the next 10 years. So given that there's a greater potential for robots and AI to become an increasing part of our everyday lives, what research is going on to enable robots to read the parts of our face that are visible while wearing a mask? Uh, right, now, I'm... right now, I'm developing an algorithm that pays attention only to the uncovered regions of the face. For example, even if the face is covered with a face mask, we'll pay more attention to the eyes. And let's say the eyes are covered with sunglasses. We'll pay more attention to the lower part of the face, the nose and the mouth and the cheeks. This new attention-based method, mirroring human cognitive processing, is proposed to categorise emotion from partially covered faces. This kind of system... This kind of system is anticipated to pay more attention to more important regions of the face. With this kind of system, I believe robots will be able to analyse the emotion of people in a better way even if part of the face is covered. We've already started collecting data, and we've developed a data set which not only considers the face, but will also look at brain activity, because we believe that people might fake their emotions at some point, like playing poker or something like that. That's why we're also looking at the brain activity, and for example, the physiological changes. You can develop this sort of system for lie detection, but for my research, it is more focused on emotion detection. So we don't care about who the person is. We're not doing facial recognition because that has to do with the identity of a person. We just want to identify what emotion that person is feeling at that moment. But what happens when we look at people from ethnically diverse backgrounds and cultures? What are the obstacles? And how does that change the ability of AI to read emotions especially if other cultures are not so expressive. Yes, actually, uh, there is a pioneer yes. in this field. Yes, actually there is a pioneer in this field called Paul Eichmann who says there are six different categories of emotion. Anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness and surprise. So these six categories of emotions have been seen as the emotions expressed by everyone, irrespective of their culture, gender or race. But this is simply not the case. If you go to Papua New Guinea and ask someone what their emotion is, they'll probably tell you that it's anger, because that's what people use as an expression of emotion. That's why we're looking at the physiological changes, not only the facial expressions. From the physiological changes, what we're looking at is the intensity of the emotion, like the arousal 
rather than the categories of emotions. As part of his research, Harisu sent out a survey to people from around the world who come from different cultural backgrounds. Now, what he discovered is that some facial emotions or expressions weren't so easily detected or identified as expected. Someone uh, got back to me. Someone got back to me saying that they saw one expression as happiness, but it also wasn't detected on any of the levels I provided. I provided several levels, which are the six basic expressions anger, disgust, fear, neutral, sad, and surprise. But that one person sent an email saying that they couldn't see any level of the expression there. Now, to figure out how hard this actually was, I got Harasu on video and asked him to put a face mask on while I tried to read his different emotions. Okay, so maybe you can give me like a thumbs up when you feel oh, like you've, you've nailed the emotion you're thinking of. Surprise. Yes. How about this? Anger. Yes, anger. Shock. No. I mean, okay, so you, your eyes are wide. Horror, horror, scared. Fear, yes. Fear, fear, fear. right, okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we'll do one yeah. more. I would probably put myself about seven or eight when it comes to reading faces. Contentment? <laughs> no, that was a no. no. But in this instance, I actually needed at least four or five attempts. Um, no, can yes. I get one more try? One more try on that one? Sadness? No. Oh, smiling, happy, happy. Yes. I was really surprised to discover that the one emotion I thought would be the easiest to identify, happiness, was in fact the most difficult. So people have a different perspective and there's no such thing as this has to be happiness. We just assume that if you see the mouth is wide and the cheek is pulled, that this is happiness. But this is just an assumption based on the literature. You might say pain is an emotion, and this is also valid. You might say hunger is an emotion. And this brings the term hangry to mind. We all know what that can feel like when it hits, even before our tummies start rumbling. So, according to Harusu, reading emotions, whether by humans or robots, isn't clear-cut with or without a mask. That's why, like, for example, uh, maybe stress you can... That's why, for example... Maybe with stress, you can assume you might be able to recognise it in someone's face. But with hunger, you have to look at physiological changes rather than just facial expressions. Mm. Now, one of the challenges, and I don't know if you see it as a challenge, but in terms of, you talked about facial recognition not being so important, but just the emotions. I mean, um, I was reading the article you sent me that robots struggle to recognise or assess ethnicity, is that problematic or does that kind of put everybody on the same kind of level playing field in a way? That is problematic actually because... uh, It is problematic actually because assuming you train the algorithm to analyse the emotions with pictures of people only from New Zealand, let's say you put this system in an airport and someone from another country is coming to New Zealand, it would be the first time for the robot to see the picture of someone from that country And if people from that country express their emotions differently, then the AI will perform badly. But then comes a challenge of the human ability to read facial expressions. Do human beings outperform robots when it comes to reading emotions? Well, the answer to that is... 
Without the masks, actually, human beings perform... Without the masks, actually, human beings perform at a lower accuracy than robots, because for human beings, they have different perspectives and ideas. And that also means there's a greater chance for AI to be trained in a way where there are certain biases. With robots, when you teach them how to analyse the emotions of people in New Zealand, and they see people only from New Zealand, then the AI will perform well. But for human beings, even if they've been in New Zealand their whole life, and you ask what the emotion a person is showing, they might say different things. But robots are more likely to say the same thing once they've been programmed. But the challenge for human beings is that we have other things we use, like speech and body gestures, which add to the context of what we're trying to say. Which brings me to the point about body language and gestures. Now, what I've discovered while wearing a mask is that my gestures are so much larger when I'm wearing one. I'll shrug my shoulders for longer. I'll wait and watch the other person, taking cues from their body language rather than their face. In some instances, I've almost felt like I've been doing pantomime movements, taking my physical gestures to the extreme. So what's your um, ultimate goal with the research, like in the short term and the long term? In the short term? In the short term, the goal is to analyse how these systems perform when part of the face is covered, and care needs to be taken when using these results from AI systems. But in the long term, we are looking at an algorithm that pays attention to certain regions of the face, the uncovered parts of the face. I believe that the system can be used in lots of situations, even if we are using a different kind of covering apart from face masks. Harusu says the proposed method has significantly improved the performance of AI compared to a number of effective emotion recognition methods, increasing the accuracy by up to 50%. This system will will pay more attention to uncovered regions, irrespective of the type of covering. The long-term goal is to produce a system that will perform this task, irrespective of the COVID situation, whether the face is covered or not. Thanks, Sonia. That was Sonia Yi speaking to Harisu Abdullah-Shehu from Victoria University. The transcription was read by Damien Galvin. This episode was produced by Sonia Yi and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj and William Saunders. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. You can follow Our Changing World for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, please help us spread the word by telling a friend or family member. Visit our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld to see some brain microscope images and other links related to this story. You can also explore our extensive back catalogue of episodes there and sign up to our monthly newsletter. If you are on Facebook or Twitter, we're there too. Come and say hi, we're at RNZ Science. Some great news this week. The Fight for the Wild documentary series about Predator Free 2050 produced for RNZ by Fisheye Films, has been shortlisted for the Association for International Broadcasting Awards. Make time to watch this really special video series or listen to the podcast, both available under the Podcasts and Series tab on the RNZ website. As ever, thank you so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.